Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Inside and Beyond podcast, and I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today, my guest is Hitendra Wadwa. He is the author of Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. His mission is to discover, codify, and teach the laws of success in life and leadership. He's a professor at Columbia Business School, where I have studied as well, where he was won the Dean's Award for Teaching Excellence. He is also the founder of Mentora Institute and Mentora Foundation, dedicated to helping build exemplary leads and inspired organizations. Previously, he worked as a strategy consultant at McKinsey & Company and was the founder and the CEO of a Silicon Valley startup, Paramark. Hitendra received an MBA and a PhD in Management Science from MIT Sloan School of Management. Hitendra, thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Natalia. It's a joy to be here with you and your listeners and to reconnect with you. Hitendra, I have met you during my MBA at Columbia Business School when I took your class on personal leadership and success. And what struck me back then is that this class taught the leadership and business management skills from a spiritual perspective, which I found personally so empowering and deeply moving. And in your personal career, you also combine East and West. You worked in management consulting at McKinsey. You studied mathematics at MIT. Yet you call Yogananda your spiritual teacher. Your work emphasizes the importance of spiritual development, or as you call it, the inner core. How did you grow to combine these sometimes mutually exclusive dimensions and what has led you to this journey? Uh, that's a beautiful question. And really, in some ways, it um, is very central to my explorations and pursuit in life. So very early in my life, I got very drawn to some of these like harder questions about, you know, what happens after death and where did I truly, truly, truly come from you know, beyond just being in my mother's womb at some point. And what's my relationship with the universe? And, you know, why does life sometimes do unfair things to people and all of that? And I found a lot of solace having grown up in a country like India, which is very blessed to have had truth seekers going back thousands of years, um, to have had a very ancient, uh, you know, heritage, um, I was able to look through the scriptural, you know, sources. And Yogananda was a tremendous window into that for me because he was a modern-day seer. You know, he lived in the 1900s, and he uh, ended up um, going to some of those very ancient sources and repackaging that wisdom for a modern age. Uh, but in addition, you know, I was, I was drawn to philosophies and mystics of uh, various world traditions. I mean, Yogananda himself was very inclusive and all-embracing of anyone who had that sort of instinct of wanting to activate the God spark in them. So that became mm -hmm. a, a really core part of me from probably the age like of nine or 10. And then mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I was very drawn and swept up by the charm of the world and of, you know, human achievement and um, you know, initially for me, it was about pursuing academic success and the intellectual vistas that mathematics offered. And then I came to America and then it became more about professional success as well. And, you know, trying to be at the best firm or in the center of innovation in Silicon Valley and all of that. 
And during that period, when I was pursuing these outer measures and markers of success, I kind of gave a little bit of a backseat to my spiritual life, my inner life. And yes, it was there. And I was, you know, Mm -hmm. reading and reflecting and would have these conversations with the universe, you know, from time to time. But I wasn't really deeply, you know, anchored in a regular meditation practice, you know, which... Uh, for Yogananda had been a core part of his teaching, um, a very advanced yep. practice or something called Kriya Yoga. I, I really wasn't invested in it or doing it or even had not even taken initiation in it. And um, I was, you know, like deferring it, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so my life swung from this very active phase in my teens of deep spiritual exploration to one where that was taking more and more of a backseat. Now, in the meanwhile, my soul was crying out, you know, it was crying out for, you know, Hendra, you know, you know that there is much more to life and to consciousness and to reality and to your purpose in this world than what you are doing justice to with all yeah. your uh, outer, you know, engagements. And so finally, in my early to mid 30s, that's kind of the time that I pulled back from Silicon Valley, came to New York, started to teach at Columbia. I finally decided this was high time that I, I just, you know, I couldn't afford to let m- another decade go by. And so um, yeah. I, I started to deepen my uh, spiritual practice, reconnected with um, a community of monks and nuns associated with Yogananda's order, really uh, committed myself to his Kriya Yoga meditation practice, took that initiation. And, um, and it's been a most blessed journey for me ever since. And one um, I think conclusion that it has uh, made me arrive at is that you know, uh, some people are very material and some are, let's say, very spiritual, but withdrawn, you know, from the world. And today we are starting to move more and more into a space where, you know, people are seeking to be both. You know, there's my material side, but there's also my spiritual side. And, you know, yeah, by the date I'm a banker or I'm a venture capitalist, but then I go on these retreats and I have my yoga practice or my, you know, mindfulness or meditation practice and all of that. And that, that's okay. You know, that thing is not material or spiritual. It's material and spiritual. You know, I, I like that. But, but um, for me, you know, what's been an even more transformative, you know, realization over the last several years is that it's not material and spiritual. It's material is spiritual. <laughs> that It's not that mm-hmm. this is one part of your life and this is another part of your life. You know, you want to come to a place where, in every moment, in every moment, you're the spiritual being that is engaging very actively and purposefully in material affairs. And that's perfectly fine. You know, I mean, enjoy the world, you know, within reason and engage with the world, you know, and pursue certain noble, you know, intentions and be very actively invested in the logic of nature and material life and the laws of outer success. But do that. Do that from your inner core. Do that from a place that is really inviting you to express what is most special and unique about you, you know, just as there is something special and unique about every other individual and me. So, you know, approach all of this outer material engagement from that place. So, so yes, you're right. You know, I, I, I do have this dualism. I think it's starting to get more and more, you know, of interest to people, but the one appeal and proposal I have for us is like also not to see them as two separate parts of you, you know, but to yeah. strive to bring, bring them more and more to fusion. That's beautiful. And that's exactly one of the objectives of this podcast to bring this duality into one and help people realize that we all start from one source and then it's up to us how we 
experience this life. You mentioned Yogananda a few times, and um, I also know that you have recently released an article uh, about the impact of Yogananda's teachings on Steve Jobs. And uh, essentially, you mentioned that Steve Jobs has sent the book Autobiography of a Yogi as his farewell gift for his memorial service. What are the key ideas of Yogananda's spiritual teachings that you think appeal strongly to Steve and would appeal to other entrepreneurs? Yeah. You know, I can't speak for Steve because um, I didn't have the opportunity to really have a conversation with him directly yeah, on uh, what he was gaining from this, but I can speculate. No, I can speculate. What I do know is that, um, yes, like you said, he uh, had designed everything about his memorial service before he passed away. And it happened there at the Stanford University campus and all of the movers and shakers in Silicon Valley were there. And and yes, they got this brown bag at the end, which when they opened up, they saw that it was the autobiography of Yogi. So it was truly his last message and so his last gift, you know, to, to the world. Mm-hmm. And and then in addition to that, he was asked by his um, biographer, you know, uh, Walter Isaacson, what books he has on his iBooks, right? And, and and the only book he had, you know, on, on, the, on, on his computer, on the iPad was... Um, was autobiography of yogi that was the only the only book he had and he said wow. that he had been reading it every year he would reread it every year since the time in his uh, late teens when he was traveling around india and he, and he found that book and so so there's definitely a very strong attraction he had for yogananda and for the ideas in that book um now uh, what i can can offer you is that fundamental thesis of yogananda which is consistent with mystics you know across the ages is that you and I, we have no idea, we have no idea what beauty, what love, what grace, what strength, what creativity, what wisdom, what joy. These are qualities of your core. These are qualities of your soul. You have no idea mm-hmm. how much of that resides within us as a free resource that is just something we access from the universe. You know, And if we become grounded in that sense of identity which goes beyond our physical characteristics our age and ethnicity and all of that towards that core you know that we are which is really a spark of the divine it is a drop of this larger ocean of consciousness and gradually after connecting with that dot dissolve the boundary between that dot and the collective consciousness you know the collective creative Mm -hmm. energy that is out there we start seeing ourselves less of a finite agent in this world for a small period of time, you know, with uh, a yeah. you know, lamp that is lit to kind of do a few things and then it kind of just like dies out. No, instead we start seeing ourselves as a channel, you know, as a transmitter, a transmitter of an infinite amount of love, an infinite amount of wisdom, an infinite amount of joy and creativity that is all accessible and there in the universe. And as a channel, we let it flow through us. And then we are not mm-hmm. the doer, you know, it is that creative force that is the doer. We are merely the, you know, the channel through which that doing is happening. Mother Teresa, you know, she would sometimes say like, you know, look, I was just the pencil through which God is writing this love letter to the world. You know, if, yeah. you know, you really like the love letter, you know, would you, would you like credit the pencil? You know, why would you credit the pencil? You know, you yeah. credit the right writer behind the pencil. So I think that was his core message. And then what he did is, he fused greatness both in the saintly spiritual realm with, um, you know, folks who were engaged very actively in the battlefield of life. And he profiled and honored, you know, some of the 
yogic-like energy, so to say, that has been activated in great business and great, you know, artists and and beyond. And therefore, he brought about a validation to this idea that ultimately the material and the spiritual are meant to fuse, you know, meant to be engaged on simultaneously. I think Jobs, as somebody who for a while had been drawn to the question of whether he should renounce the world and become a Himalayan wandering, you know, monastic, like I think for him, ultimately the conclusion was no, my, you know, my purpose lies in the world, you know, to go and do revolutionary things in the world. He thought much larger than life about the possibilities and the kind of revolutions and all of that. And he did believe that there was an energy out there and some principles of this, this universe was created, which if he tuned into, he could just manifest all kinds of seemingly superhuman things. And so I think Mm -hmm. for him, there must have been a lot of validation in the idea that Yogananda was seeking to ultimately offer a very practical science, a very grounded science of the pursuit of success by, in a sense, tapping into your highest potential and self-realizing, self-actualizing yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And you touched upon the larger reality and how full it is with wisdom and love and uh, Everything is in excess that we are just channeling through through our inner core. And I want to touch on the inner core later on. But just to finish on this larger reality topic and uh, how Yogananda was able to channel those energies through Kriya Yoga, uh, my question is, well, first of all, do you practice Kriya Yoga yourself? Have you been initiated uh, in the end? And also, I wanted to remark on that Kriya Yoga or, or yoga in general, uh, initially, it is not just a common exercise of asanas that each and every one of us has tried at some point of life. This is a much bigger discipline. And if you could elaborate on what the true yoga is, that would be also good. Oh, thank you, Natalia. I mean, just your line of questioning, you know, is um, obviously an evidence that you have given deep thought, you know, and um, opened yourself up to um, really meaningful explorations on these topics um yeah so um so you're, you're you're absolutely right i mean you know i'm very happy to see the way in which um you know we in the west have started to really invest more in well-being in health and um the inner life and and one example of that is yoga you know there are a few other obviously you know bats as well that you know we've been showing an interest in and borrowing from you know you know traditions and teachings of the east like like mindfulness and buddhism uh, so now with yoga as you're saying the popular conception is that it's about certain physical kind of practices with a little bit of like maybe visualization thrown in um but that is actually just one of the steps of a you know structured approach towards advancing consciousness to your full potential and one good structure through which to observe and understand it is something that was organized by one of the experts on yoga patanjali and he has this thing called yoga sutras you know the yoga sutras of patanjali and what it says is that ultimately you know the intention and the word yoga actually the definition the meaning of the word yoga is union you know union of your small self with the infinite self the dissolution of the boundary between your individual and the, the larger self and and the steps towards getting there are step one, yam and niyam. And so in these steps, what you're, these are the do's and don'ts, you know, the Ten Commandments, so to say, you know, thou shalt this and thou shalt not that. And the idea is to live a temperate life. You know, you don't have to be like super strict about everything, but just generally speaking, be mindful of, you know, where your energies are going. If you are 
you know, over consumed with addiction or with emotional instability, etc. It's going to be unlikely that you will be able to harness, you know, your your energies and in a very intentional way advance forward, you know, up that mountaintop that you want to go. And so, just be mindful, you know, every day of just kind of how you're living and the choices you're making, and keep them within some reasonable bounds, right? And so that's the yam niyam part. And then after that is asana, you know, this thing about you know making sure that your body is healthy and you're engaging in some forms of yogic like exercise or just some exercise of things that are just like helping you make sure because the body is a vehicle you know without the body being in a healthy place it's very hard to do the inner work or meditation etc so the asana part is just meant to help you keep a healthy body um you know pursue longevity you know in in, in, a, in a kind of uh you know, intentional ways so that over a you know decent period of time, you have the opportunity to go deeper and deeper and deeper into your inner quest. Yep. Then after that, you come to pranayam, right? And in pranayam, what you're doing is you're you're seeking to take control over life force. In yoga, you're called prana, and and perhaps in in in, in China, is it connected with breath. Um, so uh, the the prana itself is meant to be a subtle kind of life force, intelligent life force which animates us, which gives us life. When we die, the prana is what leaves our body. And so therefore you can feed it or do whatever you want with it. But basically the life force is gone. Once the life force is mm -hmm. gone, nothing on the physical plane can revive the body. Um, and so this prana is something which is not measurable, you know, as much by today's scientific instrumentation, because it lies at a subtler level of vibration than purely, you know, physical, you know, uh, you know, entities in the world. Uh, but, you know, for truth seekers of the past, they learned and discovered that, this was, you know, more closer to their essence and that, you know, through certain practices, mental and psychological, you know, practices of concentration and focus, they could start to tune into prana. They could start to control the flow of prana in a, you know, general sort of, you know, human life. That prana flows from your medulla down your spine and up your spine, you know, up to the brain as well. And it starts mm. to basically, you know, animate you. It starts to... Uh, help you engage with your senses it makes you come alive to you know sight smell sound touch and taste and and you know and then you get like completely swept up by the aura and allure and illusion you know of you know seeing reality in terms of just the outer sensory material experience and what these truth seekers discovered is that well if you want to ultimately get to know your true essence your true self you've got to reverse that flow you've got to take that you know prana and start to pull it back from your senses mm -hmm. up the spine to your centers of higher consciousness, which you have in the higher regions of your spine and then also in your brain. And so, uh, pra you know, pranayama, you know, th that step after the asanas is to start to take control, you know, of the life force. And then, you know, pratyahara is the next step. And in pratyahara, what you're saying is, okay, once you've taken control over the life force through certain practice, then yep. start to work towards reversing the flow so that you start cutting it off from the senses so that the distraction factor of the world, you know, you know, kind of gets to be, gets to be eliminated, right? Because we all know that when there, there are si sights and sounds and all that, our mind starts to quickly, you know, go into race down one thought and one feeling and all of that. And it's very hard to control it. So in Pratyahara, you basically started to disconnect from the outer so that you can now with prana work on the inner. And then that inner journey is through dharna and dhyan and ultimately what they call samadhi. And in, 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 in basically, in, you know, in, in, in dharna, you, you're basically trying to take full, full control of this inner space and get to concentrate your mind. And then in dhyan, you get to a place where you are 
saying that I'm going to concentrate on what? I don't want to concentrate on this trouble going on in my material life on the outside. I want to concentrate on a soul quality, on some aspect of the divine, something pure, perfect, graceful, which I can access from within, whether it is love or joy or like infinite uh, grace or, or wisdom or peace or something. And so yeah. you start concentrating, you know, and tuning yourself in to that aspect of the creative consciousness. And ultimately, you know, the quest is that you become fused with it, you know, where, as Yogananda would say, the meditator, the act of meditating and the object of meditation. So the meditator, the act of meditating and the object of meditation all become one. You know, at that point, mm -hmm. you're in the state of samadhi and you're just completely fused with that. You are not focusing on bliss. You become bliss. Um, and, and it's just a beautiful glimpse that you get of like an, oh, wow, you know, there is this is free this is ever available this is boundless this is so pure and perfect it's unconditional you know and yeah. i don't need to like earn my way into this this is who i am at my essence so and, and all of this you know starts to come to you experientially it starts to come to you intuitively you know it is it is not in words you know it's it's not through a set of logical, you know, yep. ar arguments, you know, it's, it's purely you experiencing your own essence. And so, so that is yoga. And within that Kriya yoga is meant to say one way to help accelerate that is by following this Patanjali's yoga and um, doing so intentionally and consciously through certain practices that, you know, uh, illuminated truth seekers of the past were able to discover and hone and get to formalize and then these were secretly offered in the himalayas to really earnest truth seekers from one generation to the next you know thousands of years ago um you know one of india's great prophets you know krishna uh, who's revered as, as, yeah. as you know an incarnation of god in india he transmitted it to arjuna you know one of india's most beloved uh, characters from from the epic mahabharat um and um and not just that you know what yogananda thought was that pretty much any, you know, anyone who has pursued mystical paths and traditions has had some practice like this. And in fact, even Jesus to his inner circle, you know, the apostles, you know, at a time when in the world, I mean, there really wasn't even much of an appreciation for things like electricity and magnetism at that time, right? This was yeah. back in the dark ages. So if you had said that there was anything, anything beyond purely the physical world, you know, in terms of reality, you know, you would be scoffed at, right? And you'd be laughed, laughed down. And so he had to be very cautious and careful of what he said and how he said it. A lot of it was in terms of stories and metaphors. And he left it to people based on their level of consciousness to be able to fully tune into his message. And maybe some would only tune in at the yam niyam level, you know, the Ten Commandments level. Some would be able to take it to the next level and the next level. And then with his mm -hmm, apostles, mm -hmm. he was able to go very, very far. And he ended up, you know, according to Yogananda and his interpretation and understanding of, of the Bible and Jesus's life, he was pretty much giving them the Kriya Yoga teaching as well. Y you asked me about my own journey in it. So in my early to mid-30s, finally, I made that pledge and I took the initiation from, you know, Self-Realization Fellowship, which is Yogananda's um, organization, and made the commitment to um, follow this teaching and, you know, do it every day and uh, and then over time, I grew it, you know, as I started to really feel more committed and more steady in my practice and rooted and, you know, started to see the benefits come from it. I, I grew it from there. And yeah, absolutely. It's something I've never 
stopped doing now for the last about 20 years. And I'm just like super grateful. I mean, it's the greatest gift in my life, you know, and one that um, I just feel so undeserving of all all the blessings that it has yielded you know over these 20 years thank you hitender for sharing such a beautiful experience and that also brings me to the next um, question about experience uh, since you also mentioned that once you become more attuned to different levels of yoga then your experience become more and more full and mystical as well so did you have this mystical experience yourself then based on your continuous practice because what i always um think about is that there's so many people who believe in xyz but they never experienced that so it It is a mere belief and therefore it creates a grounds for people to argue that it doesn't exist because it's a belief and it's not a reality. Now, how does belief transcends into reality is when we have our own personal experience that confirms it, when our subjective reality confirms it. So the question is, did you have such experience yourself at any point of life? Yeah, I think all of us, if we really pause and pay attention may r- realize that there have been moments where we have felt very elevated in ways that has little to do with let's say the material conditions of our life you know we have mm-hmm. felt a sense of awe you know in looking at you know the vastness of the starlit skies or we have just felt such a sense of kinship and connection to a bird, you know, and walking in nature mm-hmm. as if like the bird and you are, are one, you know, or you've felt uh, just a joy bursting, you know, in your heart and, you know, and, and it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, you, you did well at work that day or not. It's just something that you just bubbled up, you know, from somewhere or a deep sense of love, you know, deep sense of love for, for the world, you know, much more than just a single individual. Uh, so any or all of these are glimpses of our mystic identity you know of what is present within us and so i want to honor that you know i want to open us up to the fact that uh, you know or, or at times we've had an intuition about something which there's no reason there's no data that we had which would have suggested that that is what is going to happen and then that actually mm-hmm. happens you know or something like that right and so these are all examples of how we have access to forms of consciousness that um We have, like, in our general everyday life, like, no idea, no idea about our full potentialities, right? So if you you just take that as a gift, that many, many people would say, yeah, it doesn't come. But the challenge is, how do you do it on demand whenever you want it? And also, how do you deepen? How do you deepen that and make it more consistent? So do it on demand, deepen that so that you get even more and more and more of that, and then also in a way that is very consistent. So it's yielding only positive outcomes. You know, sometimes we've had hunches and we were wrong, you know, about them too, which means it's not consistent in us right now. That capacity yeah. to fully tap our inner cores, like guidance, our intuition from the core is not very consistent. And so, so yes, so um, the ultimate sort of mystical pursuit is one where the intention is to help you get more consistently, more deeply, and more on demand, like in touch with... Um, your core and through that with the um more universal consciousness that the core can help you access now you've asked me about sort of what my journey has been there I, i'll say two things you know one is 
in general, Yogananda's teaching has been that, um, you know, go within, here are the practices, try it out for yourself. It's scientific. You know, if it doesn't work for you, walk away from it. But if it's working for you, why would you not want to do more of it, more of it, more of it? Um, and so he's, he's very ultimately, you know, empowering to the individual to say, you, you make the call, you decide for yourself. But listen, here is what the truth seekers of the past have been able to develop and, you know, and all of that. And it's, it's been working for lots of people. Now, now give it a shot. Um, mm-hmm. That said, what he was also generally encouraging is not to very actively talk about your personal experiences in a broader kind of, you know, social context. And the reason for that is that they tend to be very intimate. You know, they tend to be very, in some ways, personal. And you lose some of that. You know, you lose some of that by talking about it, you know. And so, in general, mm-hmm. you find that lots of people on these kinds of mystical paths tend to, you know, some, some of them have a role to play as messengers, as teachers, as writers, as propagators. But the, generally speaking, the rest tend to be quietly, you know, uh, accruing the blessings, you know, from within, deepening it, but not necessarily going out there and telling the world, like, look, I'm, I'm like so amazing in terms of what I'm experiencing, which you have no clue. And, yeah. you know, if you only did this, then you would and all of that. So, so it's in general, you know, that's the case. Now, that said, there are a few things that I can, I can, you know, feel comfortable sharing in, in, in our context, right? So for me, for instance, um, the and you know i think for each of us we'll have our own we'll have our own fascination and romance with the divine and for some it may be through wisdom for some it may be through love uh, for me it is through bliss you know it is through through joy bliss ecstasy you know how how does one really um actively tap into that dimension of of the divine in fact in india um one of the you know, in, in India has like a, a thousand names for for the divine, you know, for, for God. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, um, one of those names for God, which is the one that is my favorite, is called Satchit Anand. And Satchit Anand mm-hmm. means infinite, ever new, ever conscious joy. Um, and Beautiful. like that's like my ultimate goal. Like I want to be infinite, ever new, ever conscious joy. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. that's been like, that's been my, um, you know, my intrigue in my meditation practice as I strive to engage in, you know, pranayama, as I was mentioning in Pratyahara yeah. and then in Dharma, which is like, okay, taking the mind inward and starting to prepare it to concentrate on something. And then dhyan, you know, when I'm striving to get into the dhyan stage for me, the focus at that point is on bliss. And I can tell you, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, I've been doing this for 20 years, right? And I've been, you know, not diluting my practice. I've, from where I started to where I am now, I've only sought to grow it or maintain it. And I mean, I wouldn't be here, you know, doing it for 20 years because Yogananda said, if it doesn't work, leave, right? It, it wasn't yeah. like doing something for me in terms of giving me a high, right? And so I tell you that the, shift away from purely an intellectual intrigue with these ideas to a place of direct perception and experience of bliss from within, which has nothing to do with what's happening in the world. And then in your deepest moments to observe the capacity in you to purely use intention, non-verbal, non-physical intention to deepen, to increase the concentration and full immersion to Mm -hmm. just intensify that state and to 
see that in fact these are faculties that each of us has at a level of pure consciousness that i seek to deepen you know i seek to immerse yeah. i seek to concentrate i seek to dissolve and then gradually you get a little bit you know a step closer to deepening a step closer to immersion to dissolving and sometimes you get into these moments like what one of yogananda's exalted you know nuns gyanamata you know as an american lady became a, you know a nun in his order she she once said she said you know what to me meditation is like pushing a boat you know on the beach you know on the sand and you push and you push and then at some point you know the boat just starts to float on the ocean so, on its own mm-hmm. and and that's like the most beautiful state right thank you hitendra thank you for sharing super super inspirational and i like how you brought up two things first the role of intention in this experience or intent and second the fact that this space is intuitive and sometimes not consistent and the more i talk with experts on those topics i realize that the intuitive space can only be consistent once the intellectual space is tuned down because if our intellect messes up with our thoughts and we think what we need to do you know in five minutes and 10 minutes from now it's impossible to get to the intuitive space and then the intent whether the intent is driven by egoistic desires or if this intent is driven by the true desire to know and to get to learn about the divine and that's back to your point when you say we don't really share this experience because it's not like when we have this experiences it's cool and uh, we want to brag about it because that's basically reduces the whole objective of of this experience now oh, that's beautifully put I should be interviewing you in Italia for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe one day. Yeah. And um let's let's go to to the inner core now. Uh you've mentioned it a few times before and uh, you talk a lot about it in your book Inner Mastery Outer Impact. So this concept of inner core and um how to activate it um you say that it helps people realize their full potential and really start living a fulfilling life. So could you elaborate on what the inner core is and and how to activate it? What are those uh key energies that activate it? Yeah, yeah. Um you know, since we are having a conversation so freely about the spiritual life, um you know, in, in many in many faiths we talk about, you know, the human spirit or, or the human soul. And so that's one way to think about your core is as your soul. Um, you know, for some that language is a little bit too spiritual, you know, for them. They haven't really ventured forth into that arena and I have found therefore um reframing it, you know, in terms of this notion of the core can make it more accessible to them. In fact, I discovered that more through my own students, you know, where over the years I would be teaching these five you know energies which we will talk about in a couple of moments and students would come to me and say professor you know this is really helping me get in touch with my core um and so over time i realized like you know that's a beautiful way to think about it and talk about it you know and and so um i framed it in that way so the inner core to me the inner core is the space within you and within me from where our best self arises you know when we are in mm-hmm. that place then we are beyond ego and attachments and insecurities 
And we feel in some ways very liberated from even aspects of our personality or our habits or our impulses to be able to intentionally do what is appropriate and right for that moment. You know, from a place of deep commitment to a noble cause, uh, a deep sense of connection with those we work with and those we serve, a calm and receptive mind that is open to truth in whichever form it comes, a space of curiosity so that we are not rigidly, you know, just locked in to certain patterns of habits or thought, but are open to receiving new information and adapting to it. Yeah. And finally, from a place of centeredness within, you know, a joyful, you know, place within so that when we are showing up in the world, we are doing so to do our life's best work, to be of service. We are not there because we are carrying a lot of, let's say, emotional baggage, you know, in us and, um, now others have to be, you know, receiving that sort of not very processed or not very positive energy. Uh, and so that mm-hmm. state of centeredness and connectedness and curiosity and calmness and committedness, you know, that's what I call your inner core. And the point is like, we have it, you know, and we sometimes operate from close to it and other times we drift away from it. And yeah. in some ways only each of us knows, you know, how, how close we are to it versus how far we are from it. But we do know, we do know if we start paying attention, if we start acknowledging that we are not one being, we are many beings depending on sort of the day and the moment and how far or close we are to that core. And so, mm-hmm. so that some ways the quest in life is to get more and more and more, you know, to be in a position to become aware of what your current state is and move it closer to the core. Um, and then over time to, deepen your pursuit of that core, your exploration and awakening to that core, because you may have a certain conception of what that core is, but perhaps there is a lot, lot more to it as you and I have been exploring the conversation so far, but it's more wisdom, more bliss, more love, what have you. Um, And then you asked about sort of what's in the core, how do you, how do you access it? So what I've, uh, you know, kind of proposed is, you know, a purpose, energy that kind of gets you there a wisdom energy a growth energy a love energy and a self-realization energy and for each of the energies Mm -hmm. in my book in a mastery outer impact i essentially offer you five stages that you have to go through to get to get to your core you know so for purpose it is about being stirred initially to want more out of life than purely the going through the motions of you know outer material consumption and you know engagement and success so you get stirred and from stirring you get to searching and from the searching you get to defining and from the defining you get to focusing and from the focusing you finally get to a fusing you know and it's when you're in that fusion state that you're you and your purpose and your life and every moment is all being informed and guided and inspired by this very noble selfless non-attached kind of commitment to want to just until the spark is there in you you know um until you die you just want to keep like serving the world in that way so that's that's the purpose energy taken to its like fullest you know level of activation of the core and Similarly, you have something like that for, for, for wisdom, you know, and, and for, and for mm-hmm. love and growth and self-realization. That makes sense. That's uh, super beautiful and kind of makes me want to go and buy the book to see what exactly I can do to activate those energies to get closer to the inner core. And as far as I understand, the inner core that you mentioned is there that we know is telling us something that is really true about ourselves. Now, what if this inner voice is telling us 
something that is limited by beliefs or fear or ego? How do you distinguish between the the proper inner voice and the voice that is uh, impacted by those factors? Yeah, that's a great question. It reminds me of this moment where an American journalist was really fascinated by Gandhi. And so he goes to Gandhi and he studies him a little bit, you know, for a few days, talks to him. And then he says, Mr. Gandhi, you always talk about your inner voice and how, you know, this key decision and that key moment in your life was, you know, informed and guided, you know, by your inner voice. And he said, like, and that's a beautiful thing, but there are a lot of people out there who claim that they are following their inner voice. And some of them end up doing very evil and bad things in the world. And so it's dangerous, isn't it? Like to be just um, gullible to that impulse and pull from within. And so how do you really know that it is truly your inner voice and it's exactly what you said, you know, and it's not your ego or your other, uh, you know, just uh, distorted, you know, beliefs or thoughts that are, you know, guiding you. Do you first have to really convince yourself that it's the inner voice and then you surrender to it? And he reported that Gandhi looked at him as though like, did you understand anything or what I've been, you know, discussing with you these last few days? Because it's the exact opposite. He said, it's the exact opposite. He said, first you surrender. Then you will be convinced that what you're listening to is your inner voice. Mm. Yeah. And so, um, so the whole quest for us is around how do you, yeah, just surrender, right? How do you, what, what does surrender mean? You know, it doesn't mean that you become non-ambitious, non-driven, non-committed, you know, uh, no, none of that, right? You actually, you know, are being invited by life to expend and direct your energies towards noble pursuits, you know, from a place of tremendous, you know, resilience and heroic pursuit and hard work and ambition and all of that. And so it's a little bit of a paradox. But what you're also being invited to do is to make sure the intention behind this is very pure is coming from a place of noble service, of a desire, even people who have a very service orientation. You know, I've seen, for example, in cultures, in education, or non-profit, or sometimes in the government, you know, people come with very, you know, very beautiful intentions to want to serve. But then they get caught in certain traps about like, this is the right way to do things. These are the right policies. You know, I, I know what the kind of, you know, path forward here is, and you don't. And they start having these fights and arguments and debates and, you know, and they're somewhat blindsided by the way things worked 20 years ago. Well, now it's 20 years later, you know, things may have changed. And so yeah. sur surrender, surrender means, you know, being able to create a free space within you where the spark of divine insight can just come and where everything that you know can be integrated into a whole and a new understanding can emerge. And then you, without attachment, to a certain habit, to a certain aspect of your personality, a certain way of doing things, you can choose to take the next move, you know, in the world that you are meant to. So, um, yeah. And then when you create that free space and when all of your life experience integrates and perhaps you also are able to tune yourself and become this channel to wisdom from the universe, you know, that's a moment where you can do your life's best work. And I mentioned in my book, in the last chapter on transcendence, that, you know, that's how, you know, a Brahms composed or a Puccini or a Picasso sought to paint, you know, or a Shakespeare, you know, sought to write his poetry. I mean, these people all had a certain mystical, you know, kind of 
um, way of recognizing that they were not the craftsmen or women. They were merely the channel. And it was when they brought their best training, their best expertise to bear, but then stepped aside to let the creator mm-hmm. do do her best work or his best work. You know, that's when they were able to manifest, you know, works of genius. Uh, and this is not me mm-hmm. saying, this is them saying, you know, I've got quotes from, from these individuals talking in the book about the, the process of creativity and how it truly for them is somebody else doing something through them. Uh, and so, yes, mm-hmm. so sur- surrender ultimately is a, it's a beautiful, you know, muscle quality to build. And, and, you know, some of us might think, Hey, wait a second, I mean, like, come on, like, you know, I live in a very demanding doggy dog world. I mean, you know, whatever consulting, banking, you know, all that. Right. <laughs> and what if I were to tell you, I mean, look, what about sports? You know, a pretty competitive world sports. And here's somebody like John Wooden, you know, and he was a coach of the UCLA basketball team here in California. And he, um, you know, would tell his players, he said, I don't care if you win or lose. He said, I don't want you to be attached to that outcome. I don't care if you win or lose. What I care about is that can you walk out of every game, every game committed and convinced that you did your best. You played your best game. That's it. So you do your best, but you don't be attached to the win or loss. And here's a guy who's telling his players, I don't care if you win or lose. And he ends up being the most successful coach in college basketball history. In fact, his teams mm-hmm. won about 11 or so national college basketball championships. And the second most successful coach has won five. So 11 to five. And then, of course, the rest of them are bunched below the five. So how did you become such an outlier? And he had this philosophy, which is, I don't care if you win or lose. So it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes, I guess answering my own question on how do you distinguish between the right voice and the wrong voices it all comes down to non-attachment to anything that you do be that your fear of making mistakes uh, when you're playing this game be that you know fear of uh, not succeeding or also the pride in doing global artwork like Picasso he instead of taking this pride to himself and therefore boosting his ego he actually was able to transcend and claim that essentially it was not as much of him as it was of the divine power within him so I guess from this non-attachment come the great things Hitendra, thank you so much for this conversation. I've been truly, truly enjoying it. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners as maybe a final advice? Okay, let me offer it through a story. There's a musk there who naturally exudes fragrance, you know, the musk fragrance. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's, you know, really drawn to this fragrance and wants to discover its source. And so it's runs about wildly in the mountains and is seeking to figure out where the source is. And it runs here, it runs there, it runs up the mountain. And then as it's getting to the top of the mountain, in just a desperate hunger for wanting to get to the source of this beautiful fragrance, you know, he runs off the cliff, right, to his own demise. Mm. And at all of that, you know, time, didn't realize that actually you know, the true source of that fragrance was right within him. You know, it was within him. You know, he, he was the source of that must fragrance. And I think, like, if you take that as a metaphor for how we live life, right, you know, all of us want, like, 
love, you know, we want joy, you know, we want um, eternal life and all of that. And we keep, you know, chasing this and chasing that, you know, expecting and, you know, hoping that we are going to get to the source, you know, of how to have (laughs) enduring happiness and success and power and fulfillment and creative, you know, um, full, you know, kind of engagement and uh, everything, right? And what we don't realize is that actually it's a very natural hunger in us. It's a very natural hunger because it is our inner core that is really yearning to express its true identity, its true form, and that is who we are. You know, our true self is love, is wisdom, is joy, is all of that. And the only thing is if we turn that search from the outer to the inner, and recognize that these are just like capacities we have just within us, then we come to a place of reassurance from within, enrichment from within, and a more harmonized engagement with the world around us. Because look, this world is going to be a mess. You know, it's constantly going to be giving birth to and sustaining and then, you know, essentially eliminating and and, and killing things. You know, that's just the cycle that just keeps going on. So you're never going to be able to fully, fully be satisfied, you know, with the affairs in the world and see them as being stable and all of that. But if you approach them from the right place within, with all the capacities that you have, the beautiful capacities and the gifts that you have, then, yeah, you'll perhaps see that it ends up imbuing just so much more meaning and fulfillment, reassurance and attunement to your relationships, to your engagement with your professional life, to the new chapters that, um, you know, you have to write in one stage of your life to the next, and even a place of just humble acceptance, you know, at times of certain just ups and downs and twists and turns that come to us. So that's my prayer for our listeners and and, and for all of us. And, you know, Godspeed. Thank you for making this moment happen, Natalia. It's been very joyful to talk with you. You've taken the conversation to very deep places, more than I usually go and podcast and kudos to you, you know, for all the introspection and, you know, personal truth seeking work that, you know, you're doing. And the fact that you're coming, you know, from this background like me, from, you know, business school and, and business and, and, and doing all of this, you know, just like makes my heart just like sore because it's, it's so needed, you know, out there in the world. And um, I'm cheering you on what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hitendra. I appreciate your feedback. And as you said, I'm just a channel of what's coming through me to this world. And thank you for such an inspirational and empowering message to our audience. It's been joy to talk to you. Thank you for all your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you.